This morning in your Bibles, congregation, we would encourage you to turn to the gospel according to John and to the eighth chapter. We're going to be reading verses 31 through 38 in your pew Bible. You can find that reference on page 1,232. After we read that portion of Scripture, we'll also be reading from the Belgic Confession. Uh, This morning we'll be in Article 29, and in your Forms and Prayers book, in your pew rack, you can find that on page 185. We'll be dealing this morning, as we continue our series, looking at the doctrine of the church. We'll be looking this morning at the marks of the true church, Uh, and you might say the overarching mark of the true church is that she listens to the voice of Christ. Uh, as that voice of Christ comes uh, through the Word of God. Uh, And you'll see that emphasized as we read from John 8, verse 31 through 38. So here now together the reading of the Word of God. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Thus far for now, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to the 29th article of the Belgic Confession, and it is entitled, The Marks of the True Church. And it states, we believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the Word of God what is the true church. For all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. We are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it, even though they are physically there. But we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith, and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness, once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weaknesses remain in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in His Word. 
It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the Word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we live life, there are many, many times that we make a choice. And our choices are made for a variety of reasons. Uh, You can think of a simple everyday activity of uh, what outfit to wear, uh, of what vehicle to purchase, uh, maybe of uh, what home uh, to purchase. Many of our choices are made with some type of basis or some type of rationale behind them. Uh, Other choices are just made, you might say, uh, out of preference. Uh, You might think of uh, going to a restaurant and uh, you ask your, your wife or your husband, or, or maybe the children ask their parents, well, can we go here? I really like that restaurant. Perhaps it's because of the type of food. Perhaps it's because of the atmosphere of the restaurant. But we make choices all the time in life. Uh, some choices are rather unimportant. Many of the ones that I just mentioned, what restaurant you may frequent, uh, what attire you may choose, we might say they are rather insignificant choices. Now, you might say, well, uh, the choice of a house to purchase, those are larger choices that we make in life. And yet there are a few choices that we make in life that have eternal consequences. Eternal consequences, you think of the choice of profession of faith. As a young person comes to the years of maturity, uh, they choose either to join with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to embrace the covenant promises in faith and in repentance, or they choose to ignore uh, the birthright that has been given them in their baptism. Uh, One of the most significant choices deals with church membership. And not only here, whether or not to be a member of the church, but which church? You might say that we have the blessed opportunity of living in a community where uh, churches seem, and perhaps they do, exist on every corner. Uh, Many a church characterizes uh, our community. Uh, We live in what you might say uh, is the, the, the heartland of the United States of America, Uh, where to a certain extent uh, religion and Christianity is still appreciated. Well, what church should we then associate ourselves with? What church should we then affiliate with? What church should we, so to speak, cast our lot among? A variety of answers could be given, uh, and a variety of reasons are given for why people join a certain church. Uh, some might say, well, they have this program, or we, they have that program, or I really like this about that church, or I really like that about that church. Uh, but the Bible speaks with profound simplicity when it identifies the marks or characteristics of the true church. Uh, the true church, which is one, and yet has a variety of local manifestations as we've seen in recent weeks. And so whether we are more aged in the Christian life or whether we are just starting out in the Christian life, 
I believe it is most profitable for us to consider carefully the marks of the true church so that we might know uh, which church to cast our lot among. And so we turn our attention uh, this morning to at least part of the 29th article of the Belgic Confession, considering our belief concerning the marks of the church. We'll notice, first of all, the importance of these marks, and then secondly, the identification of these marks, and then thirdly, the implications from the marks. So the marks of the church, the marks of the true church, as compared to the false church, first of all, we'll look at the importance, then the identification, and then the implications from the marks. It is absolutely important that you and I be able to identify the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, verse 1, uh, the Apostle John writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as follows, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice the pastoral concern that John has for his followers, beloved. He's writing, yes, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's writing with this pastoral burden, this pastoral concern. He's speaking the, seeking the spiritual well-being of his spiritual children. Beloved, test the spirits. Be discerning. Be alert. Be understanding. Know that not Every spirit that is out there is from God, but that there are false spirits. And that underscores the importance of the marks of the true church given sectarian groups. Well, what is a sect? What is a sectarian group? We don't use that word uh, a whole lot in our common language anymore, but a sect or a sectarian group can be defined and described as a group of persons, maybe small, maybe larger, but a group of persons who are religiously active, religiously motivated. We might even say they are very, very spiritual. They call themselves oftentimes a church. They may have that on their letterhead, literally or figuratively speaking. They may have that on uh, the sign that stands by the road outside of their assembly place, and yet the sect is a sect, and it is identified in their action of denying the basic essential truths of the Christian faith. So a sectarian movement is a spiritual gathering of persons who oftentimes identify themselves as a church, maybe even as the church, and yet upon close examination, they deny basic, essential, cardinal truths of Christianity, either in regards to doctrine or life, or more commonly, in regards to both. As what one believes, doctrine impacts how one lives life. And so a sectarian movement oftentimes follows an individual person who either adds to the Word of God or subtracts from the Word of God in regards to doctrine or morals. Usually such a person who is the leader of a sectarian movement is a very charismatic individual. Uh, and, and so he or perhaps she attracts a following, uh, attracts followers, followers who are undiscerning, Followers who simply follow after the person without any thought, without any testing. 
And that's why John, knowing this prevalency, says, test the spirits, whether they are of God. You see, contrary to what our culture would believe and what our culture would tell us, just identifying with a church doesn't mean that a group is a church. See, our culture, well, we're in a, we're in a bad spot because we believe broadly speaking about the culture, that if anyone says that they are anything, that they must be that thing. Not so. Just because a group puts church on its letterhead or on its sign or uses that word in relationship to itself does not mean that that group is a church, a Christian church. Beloved, test the spirits whether they are of God. The danger of a sectarian movement is that these teachings of men, we use that word generically, of of human individuals, the teachings of human individuals that take away from the Word of God and add to the Word of God, they lead its followers away from salvation and away from the Word of God. Now we might say, This would not be such a danger if we could just simply bury ourselves in our own Christian bunker, so to speak, and have nothing to do with anyone in the world, just kind of associate among our own selves, maybe find, you know, an internet preacher that we believe is orthodox and is very gifted and just say, okay, I'm just going to hunker down here in isolation until the Lord returns. But the importance of the marks is also seen given our spiritual obligations. We are obliged unto new obedience. We have certain obligations. We are duty-bound to do certain things based upon our relationship with our triune God. First of all, we are duty-bound to worship God corporately. By corporately, we mean gathering ourselves together. Do not neglect Uh, The author of the Hebrews writes the Christian community in the early church. Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. Uh, We know that Jesus Christ, in interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, says the Father is seeking worshipers, such who will worship in spirit and truth. And so we have this obligation to worship our God corporately. And given this obligation to worship corporately, assembling ourselves together, and given the existence of sectarian movements, this demands that we be able to identify where the true church is in contrast to the false church. We also have an obligation to hear His Son, Jesus Christ, We think here of John 10, verse 27, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so we have this obligation to hear the voice of Jesus Christ uh, through the lively preaching of the Word. Uh, And so we must be discerning when we hear sermons. We must have the ability to ask ourselves, Is this the voice of Christ? Is this in accordance with scriptural truth? Or is this the voice of a false shepherd? And all of this compounds uh, not only the obligation that we have to God, but also to ourself. Uh, We hear much in our day, and and it certainly is profitable uh, in measure, we hear much about self-care. And certainly there's physical self-care, there's mental self-care, but let us not forget 
that it profits a man nothing if he gain the whole world and lose his soul. So there is this obligation that we have towards spiritual self-care. Our soul, your soul, my soul, needs the Word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. And so we have an obligation to God, we have an obligation to self, but also those of us who have been blessed uh, to be parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, extended family members, we have an obligation to our posterity, to our children and our grandchildren, to preserve the doctrines of grace for them and for their children as the covenant continues to be administered along generational lines. Uh, So we have an obligation uh, that our children would receive biblical doctrine and biblical practice. Uh, And and much has been said informally and also written formally uh, about what might be referred to as the slippery slope and and how uh, twicers become oncers and oncers become nuncers in regards to church attendance. And all of these things you might say are just merely anecdotal Uh, sayings, but they bear truth, Uh, that we must contend for the faith in our day so that we can then hand that faith, both in purity of doctrine and in purity of life, to our children, that they in turn might then communicate them to their children so that the covenant Lord would have a church throughout all generations. And so the marks of the church are very important, given the existence of sectarian movements and also given our spiritual obligations. Well, if we are convinced of the importance of 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If we are convinced of the importance of following that, then the question is, what are the marks? What are the marks of the true church by which she may be clearly distinguished from the false church and every type of sectarian movement. Uh, That introduces us to our second point. And we want to say that the main overarching identifying mark of the true church is whether or not Christ exercises headship and authority within that assembly, within that congregation. Uh, there, There is this dichotomy that our Belgian confession puts forward. Either Christ is followed or man is followed. And now you can think of underneath the category of groups, sectarian movements that follow man, you of course could think of the Roman Catholic Church with its allegiance to the Pope. But you can also think of mere traditionalism, mere formalism, the mere following of what one minister says or what a couple of influential elders say. In contrast to that, the true church, very heartbeat, is sola scriptura, scripture alone, the word of God alone. As that word is found in the canonical books of the holy scriptures. Uh, This is the litmus test, you might say. Uh, You can think of both prescriptive words in Scripture and also descriptive examples in Scripture. And so, yes, certainly the entirety of the canon, but we think when we come to the life of the New Testament church, especially uh, the passages uh, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, as they are supported by the Old Testament examples also, and we make this distinction between 
prescriptive passages and descriptive passages, and what the Word of God does is it shines a light and it shows us how the true faithful church operates. And so you find, for example, uh, the scriptural basis for what we call the three marks of the true church, faithful preaching of the Word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and faithful exercise of Christian discipline. Those are the three marks of the true church. And you find prescriptive passages for the preaching of the Word. One example is 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. There the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, and by extension to the churches that Timothy would labor in, preach the Word. And so we don't have to be uh, left in the dark as far as what the church's main activity should be. It's very clear in Scripture that the church, the living organism of the church, ought to be a church that preaches the Word, proclaims the Word of God. You find also a prescriptive passage for the proper administration of the sacrament, especially in connection with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24 and 25, where the Apostle Paul reiterates to the Corinthian church the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the, the church doesn't have to sit around and become creative, doesn't have to wonder, well, what should we do when we gather ourselves together, when we assemble ourselves together? Christ, through the apostles and through his own personal instruction, has been very clear. When you assemble yourselves together, preach the word. Uh, and when you assemble yourselves together, administer the sacraments. But then also you can think of the faithful exercise of Christian discipline. And now here perhaps is where uh, our minds might begin to recoil. Uh, I well remember uh, when I was just out of high school uh, working in construction for uh, a Christian company uh, headed up by some men who attended, I would just categorize it as a broadly evangelical church. Uh, and they knew my religious background and as we were taking break one day, they said, do you attend a church that actually still exercises Christian discipline? And it kind of, the question caught me off guard. And I said, yeah, I do. And they said, we can't believe, we can't believe that there are still churches that do that. Well, as an 18-year-old, I didn't really know how to respond to them. I've wrestled with that question. Why would a church do that? The exercise of Christian discipline. Well, the answer is very simple. Because of the prescriptive passages in the Word of God. You can think again of Paul's communication to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4 and 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one, the individual that was living in open habitual sin of sexual immorality, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so, why do we do what we do must always be answered with an appeal to the authoritative Word of God. We preach, we administer the sacraments, 
and we ought to exercise faithful Christian discipline because we submit ourselves underneath the authority of the Word of God. Now, if we look just a little bit more carefully at the description of the identification, first of all, then, what is the pure preaching of the Word? Uh, We would just simply say that this is the foundational mark of the true church. For without the pure preaching of the Word, you will not have, eventually, you will not have the proper administration of the sacraments, nor will you have faithful exercise of Christian discipline. As goes the pulpit, so go the other two marks. Now, if you do have faithful preaching of the Word, to a certain extent you will have the proper administration of the sacraments and also in the faithful exercise of Christian discipline because the pure preaching of the Word uh, will expound upon the administration of the sacraments and the pure preaching of the Word will expound upon uh, the biblical responsibility of faithful Christian discipline, identifying sin uh, and also then calling for lives of holiness. But when we speak about the pure preaching of the Word, Uh, First of all, we do not mean that such preaching is perfect, uh, nor that it is infallible and is inerrant. Uh, There's an old saying uh, that if you go to church with stones in your pockets, you will leave with empty pockets. Uh, And what the saying means, if you and I come to the preaching of the Word with an overly critical spirit, you will find things to criticize. Uh, You you can criticize the way a man speaks, you can criticize the way a man stands, you can criticize the way a man dresses. If you come with stones in your pockets, you will leave with empty pockets. We're not referring uh, to perfect preaching, but faithful preaching, faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful to the Word of God, faithful especially in expounding and in explaining the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, along with a simple exhortation to repentance and faith. So the simple exercise is taking a passage of Scripture and unfolding, this is who Jesus Christ is and this is what He has done. Now therefore repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when such preaching goes forth, It will accomplish the purposes of God, not always how we would esteem those purposes to be accomplished, but such preaching has the divine promise that it will not return unto the Lord Jesus Christ void, but it will indeed accomplish His purposes. So there has to be an emphasis upon the pure preaching of the Word, but also the proper administration of the sacraments. Uh, In relation to preaching, uh, the two sacraments, uh, and following Articles of the Belgian Confession will deal with the sacraments in more detail, so we'll be very brief this morning. But the proper sacraments, the two sacraments of baptism and of the Lord's Supper, will be properly administered in in the, the correct way, with the correct elements, to the correct persons, all underneath the oversight of the local consistory. But then also the faithful exercise of discipline. And and here we think of the simple passage of Matthew 18, a simple passage in which Jesus Christ himself lays out uh, the way in which the body of Christ is to address the perpetual reality of sin within its midst. Uh, And in my life as a pastor, I've been continually amazed at how simple Matthew 18 is and yet how neglected it is. Matthew 18 is to be the roadmap of how we interact one with another when we fall into patterns of sin. 
And so we all do well to continually review Matthew 18. If a brother sins or a sister sins, and the matter is a private matter not known to the public, the first step is that we are to go to the brother or sister in an act of Christian charity and in Christian love, clarifying, is this what happened? Is this what you did? And then humbly, lovingly, with the words of Scripture, identify that this is sin. This is a missing, this is an action that misses the mark of God's Word and of God's will for your lives. Our first step is not to gossip about it, at least it shouldn't be. Our, our first step in a private matter is not to tell the pastor about it. It's not to tell the elders about it, not the first step of a private sin, but to go to the person in a spirit of concern and love with the Word of God, clarifying and then exhorting and admonishing. One of the best ways to just completely stop gossip is if someone brings a matter up to you concerning a third person and so the conversation may begin, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear how so-and-so is living? If someone says that to you, the most effective way to stop that is say, are you asking me to follow Matthew 18 with you and go to the person? Because that's the second step. If the first step does not accomplish repentance, the second step is to take two or three others from the church, mature spiritual beings, uh, who can be witnesses for the transaction, uh, who can affirm uh, what has happened, and also the exhortations and admonishments that are given. And if that is not successful, then the matter is committed to the church in the sense of being reported to the consistory along with the action. And then the consistory continues the steps of Christian discipline. And all of this is done for a threefold reason. A threefold reason. First of all, uh, that the sinner might be saved, that there might be the purging of the sin from out of that member's life. And so Christian discipline, when properly exercised, is not a cruel, barbaric practice, but rather it is the most loving practice that could possibly be undertaken. And I know there's a danger with using the illustrations of sickness and of disease, but if you have a good doctor and if you have a good surgeon, they perform the dramatic activities upon your body that they do in surgery out of a desire to heal. It would be the cruelest of cruelties for a physician to diagnose you with some life-threatening disease and then send you on your way only to gather together his fellow medical experts and talk about your condition while offering you no remedy, although the remedy may be extreme and although the remedy may be painful. And so the church does an injustice and a disservice when a member is sick with habitual sin if we just talk about it and don't address it in the biblical way. That's the first purpose of Christian discipline. A second person is to protect the congregation. 
And the Apostle Paul is so clear on this uh, in 1 Corinthians. And every time I think of the Apostle Paul's exhortation to purge the leaven, I, I, I think of bags of potatoes. Now, we go through potatoes quite readily uh, in our home, but sometimes, and I, I dare guess that many of you have had the same experience, sometimes you'll get a bad potato, and, and you open up the pantry, and, and you can just smell the stench. But if you don't get that bad potato out, pretty soon you'll have a bag of bad potatoes. Again, this is drastic, but it is necessary. Is this not why surgeons cut cancer out of the body? Maybe even parts of organs out of the body. Because they know if that cancer is left unaddressed, if it is malignant, it will grow and it will spread. And soon the entire body will be infected. So the faithful exercise of Christian discipline must be carried out for the well-being of the sinner and the well-being of the body, but then ultimately for the glory of God. The church is the house of God. The house of God. And God is zealous for holiness to be evident within His church. Not moral perfection, but holiness a consistency of piety. And if open habitual sin is left unaddressed within the house of God, it mocks God. And we might go even further and say it angers God. It displeases God. And so for these three reasons, the third mark of the true church, faithful exercise of discipline, although it is radically countercultural, and although many, many in the broad evangelical church and maybe even in churches that we have affiliation with may look with perplexity if we are going to be serious about being a true church, then yes, we insist upon the pure preaching of the Word and the proper administration of the sacraments. But we dare not stop with those two and then boast that we are such and such a church. There must also then be the faithful exercise of Christian discipline. Well, what are the implications from these marks? In, in our third point, two implications. First of all, the implication in regards to joining ourselves to a church and then the implication of conducting ourselves as a church. We join the church, you might say, by virtue of birth to covenantal parents, and so we receive baptism. And yes, we come to the years of understanding, the years of discretion, the years of spiritual maturity. We are also then faced with the responsibility or the obligation uh, through the initial profession of faith to join ourselves with the church. Uh, and to the young people and to the children, church membership is important. Now, there are many in our day who will say it's not really that important. It's important. Church membership within a local 
congregation of a true church that displays these three marks faithfully, the pure preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the faithful exercise of Christian discipline. One of the most important decisions you will ever make for time and for eternity is whether or not you will join the church. And which church? I would encourage, I would beseech, I would admonish, I would beg, I would plead, I would implore young people of this congregation, take this responsibility very seriously. Especially to those who have recently graduated from high school, we rejoice at this milestone in your life. You stand at a crossroads, at a a critical point of transition whether you will enter into the active workforce in the upcoming year and years, or whether you will go off to study at a college or a university, the most important decision you made was not which college or university to attend. The most important decision you will ever make, short of your own commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, is which church you will associate yourself with. And out of a pastoral concern for you when you go off to college, when you go off to university, find immediately, maybe even before you go, find a true faithful church in which you can be an active part. And don't ever neglect. Don't ever neglect the church. There is this obligation, not only for ourselves, but also for our children, that they also might see something of the importance uh, of a true church. You know, I was just talking with someone, and and I know there are individuals in the congregation uh, who who love to golf, and this is no way as an insult to to golf. Uh, I was just talking with someone this week uh, in the evening, and he asked me, you know, do you golf? And I said, I, I used to. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, kind of a reciprocal question, do you golf? He said, well, I used to. And then, you know, we got busy, and, and we have all kinds of things. You know, do you hunt? Well, I used to when I had more time, when I was more into that. Don't ever let it be said of the church and of active, faithful participation. Oh, yeah, I used to do that. I used to join with the people of God on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. I used to attend the preaching of the word and the receiving of the sacraments. You know, the golf clubs can grow dusty in the corner of the garage and the hunting trophies can age and wither away. But church membership, an active participation in a faithful church, that has to continue all the days of our life. So we might conduct ourselves as a church. I would just say this. Certainly the existence of the church is dependent upon the sovereign grace of God, uh, but God works through means. And when we think of the church that we have been blessed to be a part of, and then when we think of the next generation, we will have to. We will have to be discerning. We will have to be able to test the spirits. We will have to be able to spend ourselves spiritually when it comes to our energy 
to continue the reforming process of the church so that we might then, humanly speaking, present a church to our children that is true, that is biblical, that is pure. And that they then might continue the same spiritual activity of contending earnestly for the faith that was delivered to them so that they in due time might turn to their children, our grandchildren, and present to them a pure and faithful church. And so, beloved, test the spirits to see whether they are of God, for many false spirits have gone out into the world. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we simply ask that You would receive all of the thanksgiving and glory and praise for giving ourselves a lot within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for blessing us from our earliest years, many of us, if not all of us, for blessing us with faithful preaching uh, and churches that properly administered the sacraments and also exercised the difficult and yet necessary practice of Christian discipline. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to discern and to test and to evaluate, not of a spirit of hypocritical pride, but out of true, humble concern for the well-being of the glory of our God and the spiritual edification of our own souls. Give us the ability to discern properly these three marks of the true church. And Father, we humbly pray that you would uphold these marks within our own church body. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.